everyone, and welcome to this episode of Remedial Studies. I'm Hannah, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Rachel, and today we're going to be talking about Outlander, just the first book. Uh, I don't think we're, the series is long, the books are long. Yeah, every book is like a brick. Like, you could probably cause some serious harm to people if you got, like, the hardcover editions, like the old school ones. I have the paperbacks, and I'm pretty sure if I could, like, ha- like just haul ass and hit somebody pretty hard with it, it could cause some damage. It's like Game of Thrones big. It is. I think it might be longer. <laughs> I actually think them. you're right. But I love this series. They're good books, Brent. So, in the beginning. Outlander is the story of a woman named Claire Randall, who uh, is a army nurse from the 1940s. And in the opening of the book, she is on a second honeymoon with her husband, Frank, before he goes to accept a position as a history professor. I believe it's at Oxford. It kind of opens, tells this whole story about how she was a nurse in World War II And now she's kind of faced with going back to quote-unquote regular life. And she loves her husband, but it's like, she's kind of a woman in crisis a little bit, but not enough to do anything about it just yet. She does buy a vase. She does buy a vase. She does buy a vase. That's a big thing. And that's the opening scene of the TV show. So they go to Inverness in Scotland because, for the honeymoon thing, but also because Frank is researching his ancestor black jack randall who spoiler alert will come up again (laughs) and be a dick but claire gets sent back to 1740s scotland through the druidic witchy power of the standing stones and much of the book is her finding and then falling in love with the scott the scottish highlander the everyman not the everyman the every woman from romance novels I have a conspiracy theory for this. Jamie Fraser. And most of the book is really like their trials and tribulations. The series is really their trials and tribulations. As they go through like the historical events of Scotland in that time. And at that time in the 1740s, it was the, I believe, the last Jacobite rebellion. Which favored Charles Stuart to take the throne of scotland back from england because this is like 200 or so years after england and scotland had been joined by the reign of king james the first and scotland as the scots are wont to do did not want any part of england at the time so there's a couple things there's like a couple major events that happened claire and jamie get married for convenience reasons and for reasons of escaping the law which i was delighted by i don't know what else happens well the marriage happens while they're traveling around getting support for the jacobite rebellion basically blackjack randall scoundrel extraordinaire oh and he is wants to take claire and probably do something nefarious like execute her for being a spy or something i don't know Unclear his exact intentions, but they're squirrely. So after the marriage, they headed back to the castle where they live. And Claire makes friends with Geely, and who is like a local official's wife and kind of witchy. I mean, she is very witchy. She leans into her witchiness pretty hard. Right. So she and Claire become friends because of their mutual interest in Madison and herb lore. But Jamie had a love interest prior to Claire that he didn't consider serious, but the... Uh, the young woman very much considers her Uh, Leary. I think that's how you say her name. Yeah, it, I keep saying laggle hair in my head, and that is 100%. That is, that is not that poor girl's name. I wanted, I'm trying to remember how they say it in the show, and I think it's it's Larry. So it's Larry. It's like Larry. It's, we'll just call it, let's say her name is Larry. Let's just call her that. Because um, that's better than leg hair, let's be real. Um, <laughs> there's a anyway. lot of Scottish names. There's a lot of Scottish dialect actually like written down on the page. 
which I struggled with until I started listening to the audiobooks. Oh. Because the woman who does the audiobooks is really, really good, and she has a lot of really good accents, but it's, like, not quite thick enough that it's hard to get into, because I would be, like, reading things, and I would just not at all be pronouncing things correctly in my head, and things that don't read well might sound, to me, like, I'm a very auditory kind of person, so I had to, like, hear it and then, like, make the noise with my mouth, and I was like, okay, that's what that means. I just skate right over it. I'm going to be honest. I'm like, this is hard. Bye. This was kind of unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then I team rocket off into the horizon. Um, <laughs> Blast off at the speed of light. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, this uh, Larry Leghair character is not happy. Can we please call him Larry Leghair <laughs> the rest of the show? <laughs> if you want. I mean, it's our show. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Larry Leghair decides that she's gonna get Claire essentially killed because she accuses her and Geely? 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 Gillis? Geely. Let's pick one and stick with it. Geely. Geely? Okay. We're, we're married to this pronunciation now. Uh, Geely and Claire get accused of, uh, being witches, which does not go well in the 18th century no for some reason uh and (laughs) they are stuck in prison there is a witch trial geely reveals she is pregnant with dougal's baby i don't know if she announces that it's dougal's baby but dougal is jamie's uncle It, it gets very complicated Anyway, she's also ends up being a time traveler, and it's this big revelation, and then Jamie swoops in and rescues Claire, and then they end up in the countryside, and Claire tries to go back home one last time. She tries a couple of times to get back. She does try a couple of times. There's a couple of times where she tries to go back through the standing stones and either is taken away from them or refuses to go because like the last the final time in this book that she chooses to not go it she goes back to jamie and is like no i want to stay with you and i want to be your wife and like all this fun stuff very romantic it is very romantic i will say that this book it, it does not shy away from the romance. And I really enjoyed that. Because I think sometimes with historical romance, especially historical romance where the where the, the writer kind of prides themselves on their research, it can kind of become a little bit too heavy. But that might also be like, I expect mm-hmm. things from historical romance and I come to a lot of them with expectations. Right. And those expectations may not be the same for every single person. Because like, while I enjoy the escapism of the historical part of it, I'm not as focused on the details as I would be if I was reading, like, straight historical fiction. Does that make any kind of sense? It does. And I feel like this series really strikes a good balance between mm-hmm. the historical detail and the romance. Um, because since Claire's from the 1940s, the historical aspect, I think, becomes more interesting because it's now a plot device it's a problem that claire has to solve she has to pass as as someone from that time period Mm -hmm. and she has special knowledge because she's from the future she knows what happens the jacobites lose and lose hard Mm -hmm. so that's like an ongoing thing so i feel like that adds some drama to the historical element of it yeah, I agree. Like, like her knowing the timeline, especially when she figures out what they're raising money for when they're out on that journey where her and Jamie get married, she's just like, oh, no, like, this is not, this is gonna break bad pretty badly. Because for those of you who don't know, the Jacobite Rebellion failed spectacularly, and the Scots were massacred at the Battle of Culloden by the English army. And that pretty much spelled the end of the clans in the Highlands, especially. And since then, Scotland has never really had a legitimate bid for independence since the 1700s, as far as I understand. Though they are, there's the perennial question of, is Scotland finally just going to be like, goodbye? 
like we understand we're on the same island, but we're gonna go now. Thank you. Well, they voted recently to stay mm-hmm. in in the whole thing, the Great Britain thing. Yeah, is that they, right? I, I believe you're correct. They voted to stay in Great Britain, but then England basically i think maybe they had another there's another ballot that went out to everybody and they're like do you want to leave the eu and they were like yes and scotland was like what are you doing yeah because put Brex- it back Brexit happened brexit aside because brexit aside because it's not a problem in the 1940s or in the 1740s but oddly resonant uh history is funny like that Uh. (laughs) but yeah so so the the history part of the historical romance a lot of it creates drama like you said because claire knows what happens and um in later books well it's not gonna we're not gonna get as into it because it doesn't really come into this book but in the later books it's more she makes more of an effort to change things that are happening you know that's a big thing in dragonfly when they go to paris and they actually meet charles stewart and they're like hey can you not (laughs) We would like to not die. Thanks. Yeah. The, and then they, in a very Doctor Who fixed point thing, it, the Battle of Culloden still happens. But anyway, so in this book, uh, Claire is tried for witchcraft. She, Her and Jamie abscond, but Jamie is captured by Blackjack Randall. I think I was reading Claire's actually captured first and then Jamie does an exchange. And then Claire has oh. to rescue him. Yeah, because Claire Claire rescuing him, I think this is a good jump off point for this yes. discussion. Claire rescuing Jamie is a big motif throughout the whole book. And it leads me into something that I want to talk about. Apparently we have discovered in our production meeting, I actually read far more romance novels than Hannah has. Now that I've like thinking about it though, that's not very surprising. Because <laughs> you're not a romance novel type of person. I don't, I don't know what what does that mean. It's a person who reads who you don't strike me as the kind of person who would read romance novels. I have read some romance novels. You have. You're better than that guy you were telling that story about. But I don't uh, know. It, it should. Do we need to tell them the story now? I think you should because I think I think it's important. Yeah. So uh, the story that Rachel's referring to is uh, I was talking to. A uh, man that I know, and he said something about romance novels being kind of dumb and maybe frivolous. His exact wording escapes me. And I asked him, how many romance novels have you read? And he was not really prepared for that question. Uh, So keep that in your back pocket. But yeah, so I think when romance novels... And I think this is the same for, like, romance novels written, quote-unquote, for adults and, like, teen YA romance. It's all about power and power fantasy and what that means to the characters and to the author and to the reader. Because a big thing with Claire is that she has the perspective of a woman from the 1940s and what advancements in women's rights have been made up, up to that point and, like, the culture surrounding women's agency up to that point. Which is virtually non-existent in the world that she goes to. And that causes a lot of tension with her and Jamie, especially. Because Jamie, suffering as as all men do at some point from uh, toxic masculinity, um, (laughs) he, like, beats her at one point. Because in, like, his head, from what he's been taught and how, like, his dad was and how everyone he knows is, like, that's what you're supposed to do when your wife gets unruly. Or, like, does something that you don't agree with is you're just supposed to beat it out of her. And then it comes out that he, like, feels really shitty about it. And she's like, yes, you should. (laughs) Like, if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. But we're going to have a discussion about it. You're not going to beat me with your belt, you animal. (laughs) A thing I noticed in reading the book is that Jamie actually fulfills a lot of very tropey characteristics of female protagonists. Especially mm-hmm. in romance novels that were written before, like, 1990. Uh, someone who listens to this show, our friend Joanna, will understand this. In the town we grew up in, one time when we were in high school, we went to our local public library, and some woman had donated her entire collection of, I shit you not, 
hundreds of like paperback romance novels like the trade paperback romance novels they they still sell at like walmart and we just went hog wild because it was in the free it was in like you just to make a donation like so we just both shoved five dollars and filled up a huge box and <laughs> like it all kind of follows the same formula but a lot of there was a lot of tropes of like the very innocent ingenue type person and they're always a virgin always always a virgin less so now but i wrote down how i would describe jamie fraser troubled disenfranchised catholic virgin orphans with five names and an inheritance and that describes a lot of the female protagonist i remember reading about whereas claire is like the more experienced she's older than him Mm -hmm. which is a big deal she's more capable at especially in the like the 40s a more masculine skill like she eventually goes on to become a surgeon and she like uses she's kind of treated as very witchy in 1740s but she knows a lot about like herb lore and medicine and like natural remedies but like all the male physicians quote unquote like turn their nose up at her Right. And until she does better than them. And then they're like, okay, please teach me. Some of them do, not all of them. But she, I, I found it interesting that a lot of that is a reversal of classic romance gender stereotypes or archetypes. That's kind of apples to oranges. And how that informs Claire's agency throughout the whole of the book. Because that really is, I feel like, what she's getting at throughout the first book especially um but we're touching on that i'm on the third book for what it's worth i'm trying to slug my way through it i feel like how i read outlander it either takes me like six months to read 50 pages or i read it in like a day and a half i always read them very quickly and then i'm exhausted and i have to take like a sabbatical so i just finished book four Uh uh-huh well, not, I didn't just finish it. I'm still, I'm, I'm doing a very long sabbatical because I'm exhausted <laughs> after that one. But yeah, these books are a lot. Like, it's a lot emotionally. And not just stuff that happens to Claire. Like, there's a whole bunch of shit with Jamie in this book. Like, that is so much, like, emotionally. So as far as, like, how that informs the reading of the book, to use a buzz phrase, I find it interesting that when we look at romance novels, like I said, especially ones that are written prior to 1990, I feel like that is its own genre. But uh, because a lot of it is very... A lot of the sex in books like that, while I do enjoy partaking and reading of it every once in a while, it's very dubcon-y. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because it's like... I feel like what happens in those books is that whole, and I'm glad that we have started to move past this as a society, the Mm -hmm. whole no means yes. Yeah, exactly. That's what a lot of it is. So she really wants to, but she can't actually say that she wants to. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it ends up feeling gross. I know. Like, I didn't notice it a lot when I was like, younger but then like rereading some of these romance novels i've held on to through the years it's like oh please don't mm-hmm. yeah i think it comes from this idea that like a woman can't want to have sex or she's slutty yeah um the man has to persuade her yeah we're moving past that i hope so we had better be <laughs> i will drag us through this through this phase kicking and screaming if needed but I, I think it has improved, and I've read some... Oh, yeah. I did read two romance novels last year. You should be proud of me. I did. Yeah, you did. I tried out the Scandal and Scoundrel series. That just sounds so fun. It is. It's And there's a pun. The first book is A Rogue Not Taken. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's I'm pretty good. So those are historical romance novels. So if you like that part of Outlander more than, like, 
the fast-paced action-adventure because that's the other thing about Outlander, the series, is that mm-hmm. so many things happen every book. It's just a whirlwind. Like, how, I know. how do these people have time to get in this much trouble on this consistent no of a idea. basis? I don't, I have no idea. And it's so crazy because it is so consistent. Like, the shit they get into is so crazy, and it's constant. They get, like, a month break between major events, if they're lucky. Sometimes it's, like, a week. Most of that week is spent traveling and or having sex. I do enjoy how almost, no, pretty much all the sex in this book is, like, at least between Jamie and Claire, is aggressively consensual. Mm-hmm. I'm very into that. That's very refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> As we discussed as we discussed so if if that's what you're worried about you're not gonna find it there the one thing i do want to talk about and i feel like the friends that listen to this show that have read these books are gonna hate that i'm gonna talk about it because i feel like no one ever wants to talk about it with me is i want to talk about jack randall let's talk about i'm ready he is well i feel like people get when i say he's one of my favorite characters in the book i feel like people get an impression that that means i think he's like It's the whole thing we've talked about in previous episodes about not conflating a good character with a good person or a character who does good. Right. Because he is neither of those things. Right. Um, He's your trash son. He is. He's my trash son. Every time time he comes into a scene, I get excited because he means drama and there's going to be snappy lines and shit's going to get real and I'm probably going to cry. Like, (laughs) also Tobias Menzies, masterful performance on Stars, the series. He was robbed. He was nominated for Golden Globe and he didn't win. And I was very upset. But Jack Randall is the kind of villain that I really like because he is the kind of villain that understands exactly who he is. And he doesn't care and he doesn't feel bad about it. <laughs> There's a line in the show that I do not remember if it's in the book, but it, it I know the scene is in the book, but I don't remember if the exact verbiage was the same. It's a scene where Claire meets him for the second time, the first time he like straight up almost sexually assaults her and the second time is when she's captured and taken to fort william which is where he's the captain and it is also where jamie was held kept prisoner and whipped and beaten severely by captain jack randall to the point where he is like horrifically scarred to this day and captain randall is recounting the story of that incident and that meeting with jamie and he has two lines in that scene that give me chills just thinking about it. And one is one is when he's talking about beating Jamie and all the blood running down his back. And he says, we were making something beautiful, that boy and I. Oh, I think that is in the book. <laughs> and when it is revealed, because over the course of the scene, Claire, because the, the thing with Jack is he looks exactly like her husband. They're played by the same actor in the show. So she has trouble in like the first third or so of the book. Even after it's shown that he is a violent, horrible person, she has trouble moving beyond the face and, like, taking her, like, mild-mannered professor husband that she kind of knows and understanding that this is a completely different person. And over the course of the scene, he's he's, he's sort of been, like, egging her on to uh, to thinking that she can appeal to his better nature, knowing full well he doesn't have one. And at the end of the scene, he says, he says, I dwell in darkness, madam, and in darkness I shall remain. And I'm like, what a power move. Like, that is a power move to be like, like, that's very, it's just so evil. And I think what I, what I enjoy so much about Randall is that he just sits in that evil. And he's like, he, it's like we said, he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care. He is a completely irredeemable person. And he is that throughout the course of the time he's in the book. And I think that as much as I do enjoy a good redemption arc, Zuko set the bar, sometimes it's nice to just have a person be bad. And I think there's a tendency, and especially like, like I try to believe that I'm a compassionate person. I don't know if I really am or not, but it's tempting to want to believe the best of people even when they prove you wrong because that's what quote-unquote good people are supposed to do and sometimes it's just nice to let go of that 
and just understand that sometimes villainy is just villainy. And there's no reason for it. There's no coming back from it. And that's established very early on in the series and is reinforced throughout the time Jack Randall has in the series, is that he is, there is no coming back from the pit of hell that he has planted himself in. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think also that he's okay with that. Because mm-hmm. where you really, where it really comes down and why people really don't like Jack Randall is because not only does he whip Jamie before he and Claire ever before jamie and claire ever get together it's early on in the whole the british occupying scotland situation that that happens but yes when claire gets captured for the final time Mm -hmm. and and jamie exchanges himself for her jamie is horrifically assaulted because it comes out literally uh it comes out that Jack Randall, I don't want to say it's like a repressed homosexuality thing because I feel like that's a horrible stereotype that is not carried through through the rest of the series. John Gray is not in this book, but he's later another homosexual character. But yeah, Jamie is like horrifically, horrifically kept and assaulted for a long time and that made that all i haven't watched the second part of the first season of outlander because i will not watch that i honestly okay so here's how far i made it through outlander and i got too emotional and i had to stop is that episode that ends with claire dropping her the the wedding ring from her and frank's marriage after Mm -hmm. the morning after her and jamie's wedding and i was like i can't (laughs) yeah i feel like there's something there's something about seeing it that's different and seeing it in front of my eyeballs where i'm like like you can close a book and walk away and you can turn off a tv and walk away but like to actually see people act it out i'm like no i don't need that i had that problem with the girl with the dragon tattoo movie my grandma i won't watch it my grandma wanted to go see it so I went with my grandma because I'm a oh, good no. granddaughter. And I literally, that is the only time I've been to a movie where I had to get up and leave and come back because some of the the violence in that movie, I couldn't handle it. I had to get up and go. It was, I wasn't, couldn't do it. Like my grandma, my 70-year-old grandma, fine, whatever. She's chill with it. I had to leave. <laughs> Oh, man. It's always grandmas who are chill like that. Like, I saw... I, I've seen R-rated movies with my, my grandma before, and she's she's completely unfazed. And then there's <sighs> me squirming. Like, oh, oh God. Gosh. I can't do this. So, yeah. It's, we can kind of segue off that into... Because I do think Outlander is a very successful adaptation onto TV. Um, even though, I mean... And, and this is personal preference. I know people who keep up with the show religiously, but, like, I... I just know there's some things that I'm not going to be able to handle. So I don't, I don't watch some of it. And, um, but I watched, I think up for episode 10 and I didn't watch the second season yet because I wanted to finish the second book. And that took me like a year and a half because they're bricks and I need to take breaks. It's emotionally taxing in a good way. It exacts its toll for the quality. It does. And it is very well written, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Romance is a genre, and I want to know if you agree with me on this, Hannah. Romance is a genre, as we know it, is sort of written by and for women. And the show has a male showrunner, Ron Moore, who has done great work, great work on TV. And I remember watching him do interviews, like, when the show first came out, and he was like talking about how he got interested in it because like every woman in his life said it was her favorite book (laughs) and how he like made sure that there were women on like his production team and that they were like really careful about getting good actors like all this other stuff and it's like this is what can happen when you respect women as a discreet audience Mm -hmm. because i think the difference between this and historic quasi-historical historical influenced fantasy fiction game of thrones is i do not believe 
the showrunners for Game of Thrones give a flying fuck about women. <laughs> oh. uh. And it shows. Because it's not, and, and obviously in that show, that's an extreme example. But I think that shows in a lot of, in a lot of programming, whether it's intentional or not, whether it's necessarily of a violent or sexual nature, where you just look at something and you're like, a man wrote this and he didn't ask a woman to proofread it. <laughs> uh. I guess what that means is that like men, f- men f- have a pretty fundamental difference in perspective mostly through no fault of their own that's a lot of cultural conditioning but i think a big thing that we haven't quite talked about yet that i want to talk about and you want to talk about is the incorporation of female gaze in the book and potentially also the show yeah let's talk about capital f capital g i'm pumping my arms as i do this i'm so excited female gaze (laughs) female gaze it's such a it's a wonderful thing. I don't know. Maybe it's because this is going to get personal for a second. So <laughs> you, Hannah can cut this later. I feel like, Maybe I, feel like I, that's, that's a, I feel like that's a hashtag I need to start. Hashtag Hannah can cut this later. <laughs> um, but I've mentioned this before. I And if you follow me on Tumblr, it's in my description. I consider myself to be a bisexual person. And it's it, I was real fucked up about it for a while. Because it's difficult, I feel, to understand the difference between the sexualization that comes with male gaze and just how you feel if you are attracted to women. And that, like, really fucked me up for a second. Because, like, male gaze is almost, almost, especially by a classical definition of male gaze, is predatory. It's it's predatory and it's I, I keep thinking male fantasies male fantasies. Um, Maggie Atwood, stay out of it. Maggie Atwood, if, if if you say male fantasies three times in the mirror, Margaret Atwood will appear behind you. Um, but um, <laughs> I believe it too. It's she real would. though. She would. I 100% believe that. I'm not gonna try it. But, like, a lot of male fantasy and male gaze is is objectifying and predatory. And when you're, like, a young person, you're a young woman who finds that you are attracted to other women, you're like, oh, God, is that me? Like, oh. like, no, like, 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 you know what I mean? Like, like, because that's the only context I ever had for that was, like, how men talked about and how they looked at women. Because I didn't, like, really know any other queer girls when I was growing up, at least at least girls that I knew were queer. Does that make sense? Yes. And that's why representation's so important. Because if you'd had that, like, you would have probably felt better about it. I would have. I would have felt better. Oh. <laughs> little, little baby by Rachel. It's going to get better. <laughs> Me from the future tells you that right now. That was a, a difficulty I personally had growing up, was separating those two things. And then they are two distinct things. And I know, like, a couple of, like, lesbian women that I know who still struggle with separating the, like, the abundance of male gaze versus, like, compulsory heterosexuality. And, like, they feel predatory if they think about women sexually. And I'm like, don't do it, man. It's fine. It's okay. We're all going to get through it together. But so when we talk about female gaze, I, I, I know you saw this example on Tumblr. I've also seen this example, the Vanity Fair shoot with Chris Hemsworth with the puppies. It's cats. On the bed. It, um, the pup, oh, they're cats. You're right. They're big, fluffy cats. Someone else had puppies, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Small animals are a must, but he had the cats and he was like lounging on this bed in a big sweater and he just looked so burly and fluffy and... I'm like, you look like a man who could take care of me and do my taxes. And like, (laughs) that was, it's so appealing to me. And um, somebody, there's another really good post about this. And I think the example they used was two different covers Hugh Jackman was on. Yes, the men's health and the like good housekeeping. It was like good housekeeping or women's weekly or something like that. It was, it was a magazine geared to women. And like the men's health, he's like full Wolverine. He's jacked. Like he's 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 Hugh Jacked, man. Yes. Um, (laughs) If you weren't gonna go there, I was gonna go there. (laughs) So one of us had to. That's the brand of this podcast. But he was like flexing, and 
clearly had been like oiled and makeuped out so Ugh. that he would he would look like how he does in the movie and that was what was on the male magazine and then he is literally just casually posing with a soft smile in a cardigan of some sort on the good housekeeping magazine he looks friendly he looks approachable he's very non-threatening Exactly. He looks like a non-threatening man you would find buying local produce at a farmer's market. Like, that, that is a female fantasy. Or a, that's a female fantasy. Farmer's market hot, we call it. Farmer's market hot. That's, <laughs> and, it's, and it's real. That's the thing. I have been like, okay, I know it's not 2012, and I'm sorry, but, like, Tom Hiddleston <laughs> has been serving me, like, Shakespeare professor farmer's market hot throughout this entire... <laughs> press run for infinity war and i'm not fucking having it anymore i'm gonna die and i know it's like i had this conversation with a friend of mine we're like why do we make fun of the tom hiddleston fandom they're kind of weird but they're also like kind of right yes it's like why are we booing them they're right but it's 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 that whole thing where like that very non-threatening domestic friendly archetype of a man is very much a product of female gaze i feel oh yeah like i don't i know like and this is my bringing my personal taste into it but like the really muscular oiled up thing that's not something i've ever been into i don't mind muscular because i do enjoy the dorito himself chris evans but the the hyper bodybuilder type look like, I'm not into it. That's not a thing I've ever been into. Well, I've read... See, that's where I think people get confused because they think that women find that attractive. But I have read other people who are smarter and more articulate than I am saying that the super jacked guy, that doesn't have anything to do with women and the what women want. It's a male power fantasy. I think we talked about that in our Watchmen episode a little bit. We were talking about, like... How the uber muscly superhero is a power fantasy, but also like the nerdy, I mean, the ner- nerdy by our modern parlance, but like the whole polymath, Leonardo da Vinci man, Renaissance man kind of deal. That's its own toxic masculinity. It's, it, it's, it's, it's its own toxic masculinity and its own power fantasy. But ultimately it is, it's for men to measure themselves against each other. It's not anything to do with what women want. Mm-hmm. I think men find that confusing sometimes. I did for a while. <laughs> so I can't really blame them. I will but make an exception for Jason Momoa, though. Jason Momoa is, he's muscly, but like the kind of muscly that's like, I'm so strong so I can hug real good. Speaking of the female gaze. <laughs> Speaking of the female gaze. And also so he can apparently like chug Guinness and throw axes, which I'm I'm okay with. But it's <laughs> when I saw that video, I think I just sent it to everyone I know. Like you have to look at this immediately. You, Men you have to see women this man. regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. I was like, you we all need to see this. Well, because we all remember. I mean, I don't want to talk shit about Blake Shelton, but, like, why? Um, (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Because he was named the sexiest man alive for, I think it was this past year. And everyone was like, okay, but we all saw Jason Momoa waist deep in water in the Justice League trailer, right? (laughs) Like, we all saw that. We were all there. We had that collective experience. Like, we were all there. And I felt, like, so bad because I feel like most people I saw were saying that was not saying Blake Shelton is not attractive to those who find him attractive. It was just, like, that was your choice? (laughs) I don't know if it's, like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I feel like Jake Shelton is a particular brand of, like, the good old boy country thing that has never appealed to me ever. Yeah. No. It's just never appealed to me. I I feel bad because when I say I hate country music, 
I mean, I hate country music from like the '90s to today. I don't hate like Johnny Cash. You probably what you what you don't like is bro country and stadium country. Mm, I do not care for that. You are correct. What happened is that the Johnny Cash and that tradition became folk Americana. And then Mm -hmm. country, country turned into something else. It like branched, but the the wrong the branch that became the different thing kept the old name, and the new thing got a new name. Mm, Okay, that makes sense now. Because I listen to a lot of folk Americana, and it sounds a lot more like you know. And even like I'll take some Reba McIntyre, I'll do some Shania Twain. Like I'm not. Oh yeah. I'll do those things, but it's the thing where it's like, there's a song, I forget who it's by, but it's like- And Dixie Chicks. Sorry, those are my other, that was my other group. Dixie Chicks is very important That to was me. the right answer. But no, there's a song called, it's actually called Girl in a Country Song, and it kind of makes, it's two young women who are kind of like, I don't want to be up in your giant truck, I don't want to wear cut off jeans and a bikini top all the time, I'm cold- Mm-hmm. Like, what happened? Like, I don't, like, I'm not just a product for you to consume and, like, have the privilege of going mudding. Like, I don't, that's not me. Yeah, because even, even, like, female country doesn't really bother me very much. But, like, you're exactly right. That dude bro kind of country. Do you remember the song that came out in, like, 2010 or so? I want you to love me like my dog does. That is everything wrong with the country, with country as a genre. If I, if I ever heard that, I forcibly erased it from my memory. (laughs) Maybe my, my, my distaste for country came from an oversaturation of it. It could be. When I was younger and I was like, no. Like, the only country I knew for a long time was Johnny Cash, who is not technically considered country anymore, as you said, and Dixie Chicks. Which Dixie Chicks are an American institution, and I love them very much. And Not Ready to Make Nice is a is like one of my favorite albums of all time. I listen to that song when I'm mad. It's such a great angry song. Oh man, I could talk about that album for so long. That and like all their music. We should do a Dixie Chicks episode. <laughs> is the internet ready? <laughs> for I, they, they better be. <laughs> But yeah, so what that all means for the book we're supposed to be talking about, I guess is what I enjoy about this book in regards to how it 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 shies away from the male gaze and the male fantasy that I think kind of saturates some romance novels a bit. I don't think it's on purpose, but I think it's possible. <coughs> Internalized misogyny. <laughs> Internalized misogyny, that's what that is. I think... What I like about it is that even though Claire is allowed to want what she wants, which is good, it is still her point of view that we go through all the time. And we interpret the different men in her life through her point of view, which was very different from some romance novels I've read, where a lot of romance novels are written in like, at least the ones I read. I read like Harlequin romance novels. I read like Zebra Books romance novels, which are like... It's so trashy, but I love it so much. A lot of it is told in, like, third person, and it's all very exposition-heavy, and when I'm in the mood for that, I love stuff like that. The Outlander, like you said before, it's very action-adventure. It's very no-nonsense at parts. Mm-hmm. And I think in cor- making the whole book being told in first person was a good choice i think i i I don't mind the parts of it that are told in third person and i like kind of getting out of claire's head every once in a while like we do in the later books but having just one character to sort of filter everything through i think was a good choice for for this story and how she chose to to frame her characters like how jamie is like the younger ingenue type character with claire being the older more experienced woman and I, I think what I really like about that and what kind of what I like about Outlander as a whole, because as much as I struggle with Outlander sometimes, I get so into it <laughs> and I really, really like it because it it is a very, I think, grounded kind of story. 
Yeah, I think it's really dependent on, and why it works so well, is it's not dependent on it necessarily being super sexy even, but it's, mm-hmm. you, you get invested in these characters because not only do they love each other, there's a mutual respect that yes. is fostered between them. And it's not automatic. It's absolutely earned. It takes time. They go, mm-hmm. it's realistic. Like, they struggle. They're like, I can't be with you. I can't be without you. But this is yeah. hard and it sucks. And that's, like, that's that's real. <laughs> it is. It really shows that, like, rela- the, the kind of relationship they have, even though they have that immediate physical attraction and emotional attraction sustaining that is work Mm -hmm. and you see them work at it and it's and it's over and over again they have to choose every time and from my personal experience that's what a relationship is it is even when it's hard choosing that other person every single time not most of the time not 99 percent of the time every single time Mm mm-hmm so they do that after the adjustment period, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, they do have their honeymoon phase, mm-hmm. which is very cute, though it does not last very long. No, because that's just who they are. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's just who they are. There's so much shit happening. I think the thing about Outlander that I like the most about it and what I think makes it so popular is how... Claire being a woman who knows what she wants and being very capable, um, but still being allowed to be vulnerable and like sit in her emotions a lot of the time, is that that is, it's a more empowering kind of fantasy than the like virgin heiress who gets swept off her feet by the bad boy. And that's not to knock that trope because I do love it. It's, (laughs) It's just when... I read that, I want to get something out of it. When I go to something like Outlander, as much as I say I don't read romance novels to be challenged, I do feel challenged by Outlander a lot. In the same kind of instance, I feel very reassured by it. I think, and one of the reasons I think that is, and one of the reasons I think Claire is a really good character, I don't like her all the time. (laughs) And I don't, I never hate her or anything like that. But it's like, she's like a real person where like she makes decisions that I don't agree with or stuff that I wouldn't do. But like she, her reasons for getting there and her, how she handles the consequences of those are relatable and you you understand where she's coming from. And like, I really enjoyed over the course of the book, and I think this is part of the the first-person point of view that Diana Gabaldon chose to write it from. I really liked how we got to see her see Jamie as a real person throughout the course of the book. Because he kind of is a bit of a stock character in the beginning. And they kind of all are. Because when you get transported to this place that you've read so much about, it's so different than seeing it with your own eyes. I think when she first goes back, she thinks she's on like a film set. She does. Because she's like, well, why would people be running around the woods in like antique British army uniforms? Why would these people be running around in kilts and talking about clans and like all this other stuff? Like it's not real for her in the beginning. And getting to see her in real time, understand the similarities through the differences between her and these people that she is separated from in time. It's a satisfying story. And it made me feel so sad at the end of the book when they have to leave and they have to go to Paris. And then that's a whole thing that they start in the next book. But like the connection she forges with the with the people and the land and how that plays out over the hundreds upon hundreds of pages is so rich. This is going to be the nerdiest poll I make this episode. And that's saying a lot from me. There's an episode of an anime called Oran High School Host Club. One of the main characters, I think his name's Kyoya, it's like his whole backstory. We've got no backstory on this guy the whole series. And it's his backstory about how he had to be kind of told that to really live out his life, the metaphor they use is painting beyond your frame. And I think 
that kind of applies here because all Claire knows about Scotland is from Frank or the Scottish people that she met in the army. And as much as we can know about something and someone from reading about them or watching films or doing research, it will never be the same as living there and seeing those people as the real people behind the facts and figures that they are. And I think that's the real strength of the historical part of Outlander is even though we will never travel through sending stones to go back to the 1740s, it brings an immediacy to the writing that then makes the action and adventure feel more real. It makes the romance feel more real. It makes the horror and the the fear that Jamie and Claire experience at the hands of their various enemies feel more real. And that is something I almost like aspire to as a person who writes is to have that sort of grounded, regardless of genre, to have that grounded realness to characters that allows you to connect with them across space and time in a way that I feel Diana Gabaldon really excels at is something that I really hope transcends the sort of, we talked about this briefly with your story, there is a bit of a a stereotype about romance and how it's silly and it's all the same and all this other stuff. And regardless of how you deal with how multi-genre Outlander can be, or if you think of it as just a subset of romance, my minimal research that was done during our production meeting was just looking at what people shelved it at on Goodreads. Most people said historical fiction, but it's... I understand why so many people think, like, view it as one of their favorite books. And I think sometimes at the end of the day, as much as we love to pontificate and we love picking things apart, sometimes it is also nice, underneath all that, to just enjoy the escapism. And Outlander certainly has that in spades. Well, that's going to wrap us up this week, robots. I come to you from beyond the sending stones of the past to bring you this wrap-up and to lead you to our next journey after a fortnight. Now that you guys have heard Hannah's mini-episode, which I'm sure was amazing, Rachel from the past tells you this, you must agree with me. Next time, we are going to be discussing probably my favorite thing of the moment, Anise Mitchell's musical Hades Town. I think it's gone through some changes since the original off-Broadway cast came out, but we're going to be using that album because obviously it has not been in the West End or on Broadway yet, so we don't have those albums. If you would like to get in touch with us, be like friend of the show Matt Leggetti, who's the real MVP, and you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Remedial Studies. You can get in touch with us on Tumblr, remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. Will you be the first person to email us at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com? I hope you are. Please be. We're really <laughs> We really need it. And also, because we keep forgetting to do this, um, please rate and review on iTunes. That would be very sweet of you. I mean, we're still going to do it, regardless of if you do it or not. We haven't had a review since, like, November, and we're... We're real thirsty for it because we actually had, I was looking at um, our stats today. Uh, Some of you may know this. Most of you probably don't. We recently switched um, our hosting service over to um, Podient, which I'm actually saying correctly now. And um, we actually had our two best days uh, for downloads with the last episode. And that's like, um, sorry, not this last episode with um, the Guards Guards episode, which is the last episode when we're recording this. But that's like super cool. And we hope you guys stuck around. We hope you enjoy listening to us talk about things that aren't Discworld. We promise it'll only be for a little while. And then we'll be back to the remedial read along. But I think um, we are done for this episode. Is there anything you want to leave us with, Hannah? No, I'm still convinced they're all bots. So. And you know, I think with all good things, we must know when it should end. So that's going to be the end of us for this week.